Tonight's leader is Molly. Hi, my name is Molly. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Molly. Thank you for, um, thanks to Linda for asking me to speak, and thank you to Katie for switching when I got the date wrong. So I was supposed to be here next week, but I'm here this week, so there we go. So thank you, Katie. Um, I'm going to pass around some pictures. Um, this is kind of an old book, but the pictures are, you know, self-explanatory. And I was thin when I was little, then I got really, really fat, and then I stayed really, really fat for a really long time, and then I came to OA, and then I lost weight. Yay. Um, so that's kind of the shorthand for what it was like, what happened. But it took a lot to come here, and it took a lot to stay here, and it took a lot to lose the weight, and it took a lot to stay here longer, and it took, anyway, you'll hear more about that. Um, okay, but that's the shorthand. Um, okay, so what it was like. I grew up in Ohio, and I grew up in a small town of 8,000 people where everybody knew everybody. And even today, I haven't, I have actually, I mean, I lived there for the first 18 years of my life, but I'm going to be 52 on Sunday. And so there's been many more years I haven't lived there, but even now I'll go back. And, you know, in fact, we were back at Thanksgiving, and my husband said, oh, I wonder, you know, um oh, that house is so modern. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the new one that Jeff built. And like my husband's like, you actually know, still know who lives in these houses? I'm like, yeah, yeah, for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I grew up in this little town, and my father was a successful businessman. Um, but it was also a college town, so there was a lot of town gown stuff, and I was a townie and blah, blah. Um, but that was sort of minor. Um, so my father was a successful businessman. He made a lot of money, but he was also really nuts. And I really, I mean, it took me a long time to figure out he was an alcoholic, but it took me way, way many more years, even like up till five years ago until I really figured out that he was actually just mentally ill. Like that was the real basis for his alcoholism. And it took many, 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 many years of being in a program and observing him and asking family histories and it wasn't easy so like what I'm going to tell you today like things are going to seem oh yeah they're pretty manageable and oh yeah you found out all this information and oh yeah blah 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 but it was like many 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 years and some of you here tonight have never seen me before on the other hand some of you tonight remember me in these rooms discovering a bunch of stuff many 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 years um okay so I grew up in this little town and when kids are in pain, like I guess I could have found alcohol. It was all over the house. But somehow I didn't choose alcohol. Like I just went for the food. <clears throat> and, and so I would, just, I would just graze through the kitchen. And I would graze through all the cupboards. And I would graze through the freezer. And I would eat, you know, food that I would eat like macaroni out of the box, like hard, like you chew on it. I would eat frozen food out of the refrigerator. I mean, and it was the 70s. We didn't, like, we didn't have microwaves. I didn't grow up with a microwave. But it wouldn't have mattered. I doubt it would have made it from the freezer to the microwave anyway. I'm sure I would have just, like, taken it and gnawed on it. So I had all these very strange eating behaviors. And, and you know, it's like... You know, we would have stuff in the freezer, and I would open up the bottom of the carton and eat from the inside up so nobody would notice. And then, 
periodically somebody would go and like scoop from the top <laughs> down and like it would be hollow. And it's like, and, you know, and my sister would say, well, who ate, who ate all of that? And I'm like, I don't know. Dad probably did. I don't know. Like I just lied. I flat out lied. You know, my family would hide food from me. Um, I would find the food. We had the stands. My mother would hide the food. I would find the food. You know, my grandmother was a compulsive eater, and I would go to her every every Saturday. And and uh, when my mother would drop her off, me off, she would say to my grandmother, "Now don't feed her." And as soon as my mother was out the door, my grandmother was like. Let's go to the kitchen and start eating. It was like nine in the morning, and I would go in the kitchen, and my grandmother would have all this food spread out. And um, so, anyway, it was just me e eating was mixed up with, you know, stuffing the pain, also having love. It was just kind of like, it was just through the core of me, but it wasn't through the core of my sister. So we grew up in the same house. My sister's the one that chose alcohol. You know, I never did really choose alcohol. Um, but anyway, so, but eating was my thing. Okay, so you can only eat for so long without getting overweight. And I was a century person by the time I was 12. And, you know, like when I was a kid, you know, really obese kids were not very frequent. It wasn't very common. I mean, again, it was in the 70s and... You know, you weren't on Facebook all the time. You were out playing, and you were running, and you were doing sports. But I never did any of that stuff. I mean, my, like, version of, I guess, online media. Like, I only, I mean, I grew up in the 70s. We had three stations on the television. But, like, I knew, like, every hour it was on those three stations. I, I used to watch, like, nine hours of TV a day. I was the one that, like, just planted myself on the couch and ate. And, um, you know, that's kind of what I did. So every year I got fatter, and every year I got more shamed, and it didn't matter how much sh shame I got. It didn't matter how much I got picked on. It didn't matter at all. I just kept eating. I kept eating and eating and eating and eating. Okay, so it was pretty miserable in my household. And I'm sure that I had a nervous breakdown when I was a senior in high school. But because, um, because I was raised with crazy parents, but also parents that had very high expectations, I knew that I would have to somehow suck it down and go to college. And I know that a lot of people want to go to college. And sometimes people can't afford it. And I feel really bad about that. You know, my parents could afford it, and I didn't want to go. So I was the opposite way. So I wound up going to this college that was really, 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 really difficult. And not really very good if you were a compulsive eater that just wanted to eat. You know, you actually had to perform. Really perform. In fact, it was even be, I, I think really if I hadn't been a compulsive eater, I wouldn't have succeeded there anyway. I think it was really beyond my capability, to be quite honest. But anyway, so I went to this college, and I was like the good soldier, and I just sucked it down, and I ate more and more and more. And I had this little Korean friend who was like 120 pounds, and she would binge with me, and we were binge buddies. I was big, and she was little, and that's what we did. And then I dropped out after two years, and I went to a nutritionist, and I really wanted to lose weight. And what I didn't really figure out was that the doctor had sent me to this clinic that they had just started for really, really high-weight individuals. Like, I had no clue, like, I was in that high-weight individual club. And, and there were people in the lobby. I remember there were people in the lobby waiting for appointments. And I don't know, it just didn't occur to me that I was in a clinic like that. And, and so I remember this woman, Karen, her name was Karen. Karen was 26. Karen had just graduated from nutrition school, and she was like, I'm going to teach you how to eat. 
And she would, you know, she showed me portion sizes. I just remember thinking, are you kidding? Like, is that exactly a portion size? I mean, are you out of your mind? She's like, well, how much is this do you have? I'm like, well, at least, you know, five gallons. She's like, here's your portion. I was like, wow. But, but what she did is she gave me this food exchange plan that diabetics use. And what was really great about the plan is that if you ate the plan, you lost weight. And it was a really very sensible plan. I'm sure it's pretty much what we have in the Dignity, Dignity of Choice pamphlet. It wasn't some crazy diet. It wasn't some crazy thing. And I followed that plan to a T, and I lost weight. And that plan, even though I didn't have a program, there was no way I was going to succeed long term, that was like the first step to me to realize that things could be different. And it was also the first thing that put a wedge between me and my mother. Like she couldn't tell me what to eat anymore or what not to eat. My mother was, my grandmother was a compulsive overeater, century person. My mother was an undereater, compulsive exerciser. I mean, you know, the father was an alcoholic. I mean, it just was not set up for success at all. But, you know, the plan really helped. And then I moved to San Francisco and they didn't have a clinic like that here. And I called UCSF and I said, I really want to go to a clinic like this. And they're like, hey, we don't do that. Like here, you can go on a liquid diet. I'm like, I don't think that's going to work. So anyway, I, kind of, you know, I lived out here for two years and I was on this plan. And then I went back to Ohio and it stopped working. And I went back to see Karen. And in the meantime, Karen had been at the clinic for highway people for two years. And she was learning something. She was learning that even if you give somebody one of those plans, they don't always do that plan. And if you say they're free foods, oh, people might compulsively eat these free foods. Like she was learning this stuff. And she told me, she said, you know, she goes, you were my perfect patient because you just did what I said and you lost weight. She goes, but I really feel like you traded one compulsion for another. She goes, I think there's something else. She goes, I'm really learning that it isn't this simple. You know, and she didn't say, oh, but there's this wonderful program called OA, go to that program. She just kind of said, I don't know what to do. I'm as clueless as you. And I was like, well, that's not confidence inspiring. So, you know, I didn't go back to Karen. But I do think of Karen often. She was very, very helpful in many ways. Um, okay, flash forward. I moved back to San Francisco, and I find out about this program called OA. And I start coming to meetings. And I last for literally three weeks, and I can't come back. Like... I just know I can't do it. I don't want to do it. It's too threatening. And so I don't come back. Um, and so then three years would go by, and then I would come back for another three weeks, and I could barely stand it. And I'm like, I can't do this. There's no way I can do this. It's too threatening. And then another three years would go by. So the third time, or maybe it was the fourth time I came to OA, I was 31. And I came to, I came to this meeting. Then I went and sat in that room with the newcomers. And I remember the guy that told me the newcomer story. And, uh, and, I, and I, had, I had started this other program in between like one of these three-year stints. And so I realized the 12 steps worked. And I remember telling my boyfriend, well, I'm going to come back here. And he said, well, I, don't, I didn't think you really liked that program. I'm like, I don't really, but I'm pretty desperate. I think I'm going to go back here. And so then I saw somebody from my other program in this program. I had no idea she was in this program. It blew my mind. And I said, you know, I'm really worried that if I come for three weeks, I'll just leave and I won't come back again. And she said, well, she goes, just come for the fourth week then. And it was like this thing that was so simple. It's like, oh, my God, I don't have to commit for life. I just come back for the fourth week. Okay, so that was when I was 31. And now, next Sunday, I'm going to be 52. And I've just kept coming back. 
the next meeting, you know, I was like, am I going to be cured in six months? I wasn't cured in six months. I kept coming back. I kept coming back. I kept coming back. I graduated from school. I got a job. You know, I had never held a job for more than a year before. I've been at this job for 18 years now. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, it's like I have stability. I have financial stability. Um, you know, I made it through a lot of rough things at this job. Um, I was on a development program in this job that was really hard and really threatening. And instead of like binging over it, I actually had to work the steps and I had to work the steps harder. And then I had to stop overworking. Then I had to get in touch with my workaholism and my perfectionism. And then I had to be vulnerable enough to start dating, which was even harder than holding down a job for 18 years because I am, I am such, I am like really anorexic on that side of things. Like I don't really want to be with people. And I said, if I'm going to become a whole person, that's something I'm going to want to do. And then I wound up getting married. And then I wound up like wearing the white dress and walking down the aisle. And some of you were there and I was petrified to do that, but I did that, you know, and my mother was there and I didn't invite my crazy father. And, you know, that blew up and had a whole other thing, but I didn't binge over it. I handled that. And then, and then I moved to Novato, and then I moved to El Cerrito, and now I live in the suburbs, and I never thought I would do that. And, you know, so it's like on and on and on and on and on. Then five years ago, my father stepped down, and I had to go help him in a major way. And he was crazy, and he wasn't drinking, and he was still crazy. And I wound up flying to Ohio every six weeks. I started out every four weeks. And then it was every six weeks. And part of the beginning of that is basically I went AWOL on my work and went to Ohio and said, I can't come back. Like, it's too out of control. My boss is like, just stay there. We'll give you the time. Just do whatever you have to do to stabilize it, then come back. And my company was really supportive, but it was really, really hard. And so I did that for three years. And then, and then I had just gotten back from Ohio, like literally two days before, and I was telling my sponsor, I just don't think I can do these Ohio trips anymore. And then literally two days later at 2 a.m., I woke up and there were paramedics in my room. And I'm like, why are these paramedics here? And my husband was dressed. I'm like, hey, hey, who are you guys? And they're like, well, we think you, you had a seizure and we're going to take you to the hospital. And they took me to the hospital and I was diagnosed that night like that with a brain tumor. And I was like, wow, you know? Wow. And this is why I know that I'm a compulsive overeater, because when the brain tumor doctor said, I want you to walk three miles a day because I can't give you drugs and you could get a blood clot before you even get on the table in three weeks and die right here. I just started walking three miles a day. If my sponsor had told me to walk three miles a day, no, it would have been really hard. But the brain tumor doctor said, hey, if you want to live, this is what you're going to have to do. And I'm like, all right, snap to and I did it, you know, and I did everything she said, everything she said. And, and, you know, I'm in a profession where if you make a mistake, everybody's like, well, who cares? It's not like we're doing brain surgery. Well, now I know what brain surgery is like. And thank God I'm not doing brain surgery. My God. Um, you know, but she, that's what she does. And she was really good at it. And I'm really grateful. And, and then my mother came and stayed with us for seven weeks, which was amazing because through this thing, like dealing with my dad, I got a lot of healing with my mom. And then my mom came out and took care of me. And she was never really the one to take, she was never the taker care of. And she did. And she cooked for me and made me yogurt and did all this stuff. And my husband was there and he took care of me. And I had a lot of people in my life that came and walked with me. And 
Then my company was really supportive, and it turned out I couldn't go back to work full time. They said, don't worry about it. Just we'll take whatever hours we can give you. And I guess my point is, through all of this, I didn't have to eat over it. You know, I had a program. I knew how to ask for help because I learned that in my early days here. And now I just ask for help wherever. I ask for help with my dad. I called every social service agency in town. I asked for help for myself. I have a sponsor. I have therapists. There's fellows in the program. I go to meetings. You know, I've got, you know, this stuff I have to do because, because I'm still, my head's still recovering two years out, you know, but I, have, I do things that help me with that, you know. You know, it's like I don't have to hide from the world. And then in April, my father passed away. And I got to go there and deal with some really awful shit. Um, but guess what? I had a funeral for him, and a whole bunch of people came, you know? And the whole town, his whole little town came out for him. But I had gone for all those weeks and built all those relationships. And, and I could never have done that, eating. Like, eating, like, really, my life pre-program was living in this neighborhood, going to that store in the corner, or that store over there, or that store over there, coming home, being isolated, watching TV. Like, I didn't have anybody in my life. And now I have all these people in my life. I couldn't even go back to Ohio. I was too ashamed. You know, I go kind of slink around town. Now I'm like, hey, I'm here. And then tomorrow, this is pretty amazing, but there was a person on my four-step list 20 years ago. And or the ninth step list, but it wasn't really somebody I needed to make amends to. I just felt like I had been really hurt by her. And through the years, we got in touch. And she, all of a sudden, she, she said, hey, I'm coming to San Francisco this week. And I said, oh, I said, you know, would you like to get together? I don't know if it's going to be a good visit. I don't know if it's going to be a terrible visit. It doesn't matter. I'm just showing up and just, you know, reconnecting something that, hurt me a long time ago, but I really feel for my own self, it's a good thing to do. And I told my sponsor, hey, if it's great, I'm going to text you, and if it's really awful, I'm going to text you too, you know? <laughs> and I kind of feel like I got that support, you know? I don't have to slink around. I'm not the person that I was, you know, as a kid. I'm not a, the person I was yesterday, frankly, you know? I even went to the gym today. Yay. <laughs> you know? I hired a trainer. I would never have done that in my disease. But I hired this guy. He knows what to do. He's like, hey, let's see you do a plank. I'm like, all right. You know, it's like memory replacement. It's not like the gym teachers who shame me in the past. He's, you know, I pay him, and he tells me what to do, and I do it. So anyway, um, that's pretty much my story. You know, OA saved my life on many, 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 many levels. Like, I don't have to. I'm not knee-deep in the food. I don't have to binge on the food. Yes, food is always going to be my Achilles heel. Yes, I'm always going to need help over it. Yes, I'm always going to have to pay way more attention to this. It's always going to become harder for me than anything else. But I've got all this. I've got the base of support that I need. So, um, you know, one of the, yeah, one of the really amazing things was when I was lying in the hospital with a brain tumor, like my husband had like put in all these you know, to text everybody to say how it was okay. So I had, like, different people in different communities as my point person. So I'm like, hey, Don, when you figure out what is going on with me, could you just text so-and-so in the program and then so-and-so at, at the church and so-and-so in this community and so-and-so at my work? And, and so I was telling – so anyway, so I was awake, I was alert. It was after the operation – 
And I was in like a step down ICU. It wasn't, it wasn't quite ICU, but you're monitored for like 24 hours. So it is like heavy monitoring. And you're in the room with another patient who's just had a brain surgery too. So I asked Don, I said, hey, did you get in such and such with somebody, you know, whoever in OA? And this woman over here heard OA. And her daughter said, oh, my God, are you in OA? She goes, we were in OA. OA makes such a humongous difference in my life. My God, when I was eating that food plan, it was awesome. And it was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And she said, isn't it so great that you learned how to change how you ate? Can you imagine having a brain tumor and then having to learn how to change how you ate? At least you did that first. Isn't that awesome? And I'm, I was thinking. And I, at first I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm thinking. Like, actually, I have a brain left. And then I was like, yeah, I'm really glad I didn't have to change every part of my life to handle this brain tumor. So anyway, that's it. OA saved my life. It got me out of my isolation. It got lots of people in my life. It got me lots of help. I've helped a lot of people. And I wound up doing things beyond my wildest dreams. So I can't say enough about it. Just keep coming back because it really works. All right. This is where I get in trouble. Sorry, people. Here I go again. Arr. All right. Anyway. Now is the time to practice the seventh, seventh tradition, which states that we are fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Current guidelines recommend contributions of at least $3 when possible. Newcomers need not contribute, but we encourage you to visit the literature table instead. This meeting has also elected to take a second collection to support the efforts of the Professional Outreach Committee. Um, we offer books at cost. This is for the first, second, seventh tradition. This is for the second, seventh tradition. Oh, my God. This is not stopping. Okay. Um, we offer books at cost and pamphlets are free to newcomers. Our literature person, Francoise, is available to talk to newcomers at the literature table after the meeting. Um, it's the first Tuesday, but I believe, was there the treasurer's report last week that was read? read, read? I know our treasurer is out ill today. She's out sick today, so we'll see if we'll do it next week, maybe. Um, sponsors are OA members who are living the 12 steps and 12 traditions to the best of their ability, share their recovery with other members of the fellowship, and are committed to abstinence. Find someone who has what you want and ask how they are achieving it. Will all those currently sponsoring please raise their hands? Will all those willing to sponsor please raise their hands? And will all those looking for a sponsor please raise their hands? Um, a couple of upcoming events. Everything is running. Um, we have this lovely bookmark. There's only one of them. And this is for the um, OA birthday party in Los Angeles. So it's Save the Date. January 13th through 15th, 2000, that's coming up, right? 2017, is this year. So LAX Hilton, Los Angeles, which is a really amazing event. Um, it's, LA is the start of OA, and it's a whole day, a whole weekend of activities and recovery. It's wonderful. Um, we are also asking to save the date for Unity Day in San Francisco. is happening February 25th between 10.30 and 3.30. So I'm not sure if there's a location yet, but that's happening. Um, I believe if anybody wants to help and volunteer for that, 
Um, you should go to the Sunday meeting at 9.30 at Davies, and afterwards, I believe, they usually meet up afterwards. Is that right? Does anybody else go to that meeting and know? Yes, so this, that's a thing. Um, are there any other OA-related announcements? Oh, yes, thank you, Carol. And so we had one of our tabled items from our last one of our committee meetings um, was that we were there was a proposal to change the time of this meeting from 8 o'clock to potentially 7 o'clock, something like that. So, um, And then the, there was an outstanding item to see if it was available at the church. And it is available at the church, so we will discuss that in our next meeting, which will be the third of the month. And I'll announce this next week as well, um, the third week of the month. Um, any other? Any other? No? No other announcements? Okay. Um, a brief business meeting is held the third Tuesday of the month during the meeting. All agenda items requiring a vote must be announced at three meetings prior to the vote. Um, we distribute anniversary chips on the last Tuesday of each month to anyone wishing to collect one. And we encourage those with program anniversaries to speak in the month of their anniversary. Please um, see me if you want to volunteer, and I'll get the message to the, our speaker chair. She's not here. Will all those with more than one year of abstinence please stand?